Welcome back, everyone, to Changing Reels, the bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked or underappreciated films and two short films, which we try to tie into our overall topic. Barring that, we just like to shine a light on shorts that might only get attention around awards show season. As always, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And if you like what you hear on Changing Reels, please take a minute to rate our podcast on iTunes. If you want to support Changing Reels directly, please consider contributing to the Can't Stop the Movies Patreon. That is my Patreon for the record. I do the editing and production work for the cast, and any contributions help keep me fed and the podcast better. Uh, you can also support our parent network at Modern Superior, where we post the links for the short films we will be discussing. Now, today is part two of our month on disability movies, and once again, joining us is Kristen Lopez. How you doing today, Kristen? I'm great. Always good to have you back. This will be her third go-around. The other two times have been a charm, so maybe this one will be a karmic train wreck? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, but Kristen, anything you want to plug before we get started here today? Yeah, I'm trying to think from the last time we recorded. Um, <laughs> I do know that I, I just recorded a new episode of my classic film podcast, Ticklish Business. We did a Halloween episode on the house on Haunted Hills. So you can check that out at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. Rock on. And Courtney, how about yourself? For me, I'm doing well. I can't, not much has happened. I've just been... I know the last episode, I guess, we promoted the Black Stars series at TIFFs, and I actually went and saw a couple of the films, and I'm going to be seeing a few more over the next coming weeks, so that's been great. But I did want to mention, since the last time we spoke to Christian, uh, we were, she had mentioned about meeting Oscar Isaac and Sofia Coppola, and I think it was not, what, maybe five hours after we last spoke, she met Greta Gerwig. I, <laughs> I saw that on my Facebook feed, and I know she says she's not living the dream, but to me she is, so with love and envy. Yeah, uh, that that night we recorded, I was actually going to see Lady Bird, and they had told us that it was the hometown premiere that Greta Gerwig, because the movie is set in Sacramento, where I live, and so Greta Gerwig had apparently invited all of her family and her friends, uh, people that she, she lived next to, to come to this premiere, and I guess they decided it would be a great time to invite the press as well. So uh, we got to go see the movie. Movie's fantastic. It's probably my favorite film of the year so far. Um, and yeah, we all got to go to this after party. Uh, and I don't ever get invited. This this never happens in Sacramento because why the hell would you have a premiere in Sacramento? But, but yeah, we got to go to uh, an after party. They gave us free food and booze, which again, <laughs> like I'm fine with that. And yeah, I got to. Already. I pretty much like stalked Greta Gerwig lovingly because she she had a lot of friends and family she wanted to say hi to and I didn't want to interrupt but I like hung in the background until she she turned around and I told her how much I liked uh, the movie and I did bring up the, the fact that she's in House of the Devil for a very small amount of time and how much I liked her in that and she, she was really happy about that that I brought it up she's like well you know I make a memorable exit I'm like yes you do <laughs> yeah that's putting it extremely mildly boy this is, this is actually kind of a nice synergy because between uh, Greta Gerwig's appearance in House of the Devil because that one was written and directed by Ty West he's kind of part of this modern horror is always ebbing and flowing, but it's a steady, reliable thing. And we're going to be talking about Mike Flanagan's Hush later. So you seem to be plugged into the karmic horror cycle of entertainment. 
Yeah, and it probably helps, too, that I got to talk to Don Mancini a couple of days ago. We were talking about disability and uh, in his film, Cult of Chucky, and he was very, very happy that somebody wanted to, to talk about that with him because he didn't anticipate many people wanting to. That's awesome, and between everything, you guys have probably broken me down on actually watching Cult of Chucky, so... Well, watch Curse of Chucky first, and then watch Cult of Chucky, which is the sequel. That's a good point, because I'm trying to think back to the last one I watched. I think it was... Like, you really don't, yeah, you really don't need to have watched the first three or the Tiffany one's Bride or Seed. You really don't, in order to enjoy the new films, although that helps. Gotcha, so at this point, it's kind of like the Universal Soldier series. Just go straight for the later ones and the early ones you can kind of write off. I do have a soft spot if we're talking Chucky films for the first two. I think the well, first two are very fun. One. The third one, I don't particularly care for... Bride of Chucky, I think, is fun. Seed of Chucky is horrible. And then um, the two new ones, I, I really appreciate just for how they portray uh, disability. And Don Mancini almost made me cry because we were talking about how, well, what research did you do when you were writing this movie about disabilities? And he was like, well, we had we had a technical consultant. We had a disabled technician who taught us all these things. I was like, wait a minute, you had a disabled person on set? to tell you what was right and wrong. And and he was like, you know, we did all this stuff on research on wheelchairs. And, you know, there's so many different varieties. of wheel- I'm like, stop, guy, because I'm about to sob in front of you. Oh. You are telling me everything that I've always wanted to hear from a director. That's awesome. Okay, you know, I... Yeah, I so he gets, he gets cool points forever for that. Yeah, I have to watch them just, like... As a, as a karmic thing now, if nothing else, because that's really rad. And I'm glad that you had to have that experience. And of course, that you're back here with us for round three. Which I, I did tell him to watch the, the movie we're discussing today. So he hadn't seen it. So I told him to watch it. Excellent. So it looks like it's going to be a maiden voyage for, well, myself and Don Mancini, if he's gotten around to it. And if he's listening... I can't wait to check out your movie. Now, before we get started on our feature film, we do like to talk about two short films that may have something to do, may not have something to do, but they caught our eye, and we're here to explain why. I just came up with that rhyme. Courtney, (laughs) how about you? What you got for us? You are the rhyme master today. My short film is called Dawn of the Death, and it's... Directed by Rob Savage. Now, when I went to pick this film, I was actually thinking of getting something lighter in tone, just because I knew, although I hadn't seen it up until recently, uh, Hush was going to be horror. And I was thinking, well, let me try and do something genre. And I was originally thinking comedy, because I wanted to show the various facets of disability. And when I originally saw the title of this, and I thought, oh, this might be an interesting kind of campy take on the whole zombie genre. And then I watched the film, and it was completely not that. But I was so captivated by this film, especially the first half, because I would argue it almost feels like a precursor to a zombie film. When the short ends, I kind of felt like a feature film was coming right after it. Who knows, maybe this will get involved into a feature. But the premise of this film is essentially it follows three individuals so there's sam who is i believe a teenage girl who's has some issues at home and there's a whole storyline with her father and then there's the tale of i believe it's imogene and uh nat who are two friends and at first you think they're talking about the awkwardness of being deaf in public and then there's also the story of kevin who's at some type of community award and he's 
received the courage to to speak in his natural voice, you know, and he hasn't done so in a long time due to ridicule. So the way how the film establishes is you think that a lot of the awkwardness has to do with the individual's disabilities, but it's really about the stuff that's happening. To me, the disability was almost secondary to everything else that was going on in their life. Um, For Sam, you realize that her problems at home are actually very sinister and her father is a creep. Um, With Nat and Imogene, it's their awkwardness is Imogene wants to have their relationship out in the open, whereas Nat is still kind of wants to keep it in the closet. I guess with Kevin, his arc is probably the, the the least. His, I think, just helps to catapult the whole zombie narrative. So that section really captured me, and that's why I chose it. Those who are looking for a straight zombie foot might be a little disappointed, but those who are interested in seeing everything that happens leading up to a zombie outbreak, you might want to check this film out. Uh, it plays like a prologue to a, a wider film, and that's kind of what I wanted. I wanted to see more about how... This affects these characters who obviously couldn't hear the pulse, which is what they call it, and are thus not affected by it. And really, it just ends with carnage and watching some poor deaf person be, like, ripped apart. I thought it was a little undermining. Because really, for me, maybe because I'm used to looking at disabled narratives with disability in mind, I was watching this more for how... It pretty much talks about how we should just, like, salt the earth. (laughs) Because you're looking at all the able-bodied people who can hear, and it feels very manipulative. Like, Sam's father is a disgusting human being who uses the fact that he knows sign language as a means of manipulation to be alone with this child that he is having an inappropriate relationship with. Or... The guys with the weird Halloween masks that think it's funny to follow Nat and Imogen and make fun of them, or even the people at the dinner at the awards where, you know, Kevin has to talk about how he's using his own voice and not an interpreter. And it's just kind of everybody giving him this pat on the back for being so, you know, uh, I, I think of. I'm trying to think of the term South Park uses, like something courageous and brave or something like that. Um, just kind of the buzzwords that we, we put on disability. So that's what I, that's the perspective I looked at. So when this zombie event happens, I was thinking like, cool, these people who have been marginalized and made fun of and manipulated can now take over the world. And, but it just ends. So I didn't really feel any sense of catharsis. I loved this, but I was extremely pissed off when Dawn of the Death, the title, <laughs> flashed on the screen because it's like, no! You that undermines so- the entire, I mean, Dawn of the Dead, if we're, we're going to use the reference, is all about how they deal with it post-zombie <laughs> invasion. But, like, for what this does extremely well, it actually goes back to something that you were saying last episode, Kristen, uh, with Hole and how Hole had like everything and nothing to do with disability. I don't think that this gets to the same depths that Hole did, but there are flashes of magnificence. And for me, like the high point was when Nat and Imogene are having their little kind of like public fight in the subway tunnel and they're signing furiously to each other and it's just a single unbroken shot circling 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 and the thing that i freaking loved was like you could tell what was going on in the relationship without the subtitles 
I liked that Rob Savage tuned into that really quickly with having the bodies half concealing and half wiping away. And then sometimes we did up with entire sentences or phrases that they're saying. We don't need that interpretation there. We can tell what's going on in the emotion and the bits that we're getting inside that moment. Kevin, yeah... There is a, the term I use for it, and I don't know where I picked it up. It wasn't South Park, but it was, um, but it's inspirational porn. It's oh, like, yeah, inspiration, inspiration porn. Inspiration porn, yeah. Because yeah. it's a very Midwest thing to, like, just celebrate someone for existing with a disability. Or I know that's likely a worldwide thing. I don't want to limit it specifically to the Midwest, but... It is! It, it's a, it happens yeah. on the West Coast! But, but <laughs> like, what I was thinking of was, uh, at the, the high school that I graduated at, no, a normal community West high school, the parents and everyone in attendance for the graduation ceremony one year stood up and applauded for uh, this wheelchair student who was receiving their diploma, and the guy that was there was just asking, like, oh, is, is this person valedictorian or salutatorian, or did they do something or whatever? And no, it was just a person in a wheelchair. So, oh, oh so- no, I can I can trump that. I can trump that. I, my high school graduation, we laugh about this in my house, because it still makes me so mad. So when I graduated from high school, which, by the way, I had to argue with my high school to put a ramp up to the stage because they wanted to hand me my diploma in the grass and wouldn't let me walk on the stage because it was too hard to get a fucking piece of plywood, apparently. But they did it. They made it work. They made it work after I screamed at them. (laughs) My principal proceeded to go through the litany of, like, students he was happy to see. And he said, as soon as he said it, he said, and let's not forget the students that have overcome adversity. And I was sitting there, my friend's looking at me the whole time. And I was like, please don't say my name. Please don't say my name. And he said, Kristen Lopez and this other guy. I wasn't offended that I was said. I was more offended that I got lumped in with the other dick who had a brain (laughs) tumor when he was three. And they removed it. And he was an asshole through all four years of high school. And I was just more offended by the fact that I was like, he hasn't overcome shit. He had a brain tumor at the age of three. He got it taken care of. I'm still in a wheelchair. (sighs) Ah, yes. So, um, if I ever see that guy at the 10 year reunion, um, I'm not apologizing (laughs) for my comments. So I stand by them. Well, uh, I guess that, (laughs) and then, um, the the experience that uh, I had from normal community West obviously different, but but that is how I felt in regard to Kevin's plot line that it was more kind of inspiration porny, and then they rip him to shreds. and And I'd like to have some kind of easy metaphor there. I'm sure if I sat here and stretched my words out long enough, I'd come to it. But rather, I'll just shift the spotlight over to Courtney and ask him what he thought of it. I had issues with Kevin's limited arc, um, and part of me wonders if if it was a feature, would he have been fleshed out more, or is he just that character that you you often get in in horror films, genre films that you know there has to be that that one person that goes like you know the Drew Barrymore but less famous in Scream, you know there's always that one character that has to go first, but. After he went, then, you know, you start to get to see all the the dead bodies start to reanimate and come back to life. And it made me think about Sam because Sam finally gets to exact her power and fight off this 
man who's been horrible to her for, we could assume, a fairly long time. And then as she's kind of coming to terms with what has just occurred, you, you see the body reanimate. It's like, oh, she's, you know, you're putting her in the victim's position all over again. But again, if this was a longer, if it was a future film, who knows? Maybe she might at some point meet up with Nat and Imogene. I, I don't know. But it, the zombie aspect of it, which is what they're building to, how it's handled, and because it's so abrupt, I felt like this film needed a little more. But everything leading up to it, I was captivated with. Even even the way how you had simple things of like Sam wearing the Frankenstein t-shirt. There's a lot of n- nods to characters, again, alluding to feeling out of place, feeling like freaks, what have you, and you think it's because of the disability, but it's not. It's because of the other things. Like I when I saw her wearing that shirt, I was thinking, you know, she she's probably feeling like a monster freak or, you know, because she's living with a monster, you know, and the stuff that's going on with her, like the it's I don't know, it's it's a, to me it was a very interesting film and I, I love the way Savage approaches these issues and it's it's tough to watch at times. And but I just I don't know, I guess I wish it was just a little longer so that it could make the whole zombie aspect f- flow a bit smoother. And deafness is one of the more well-used tropes in in cinema because it's, and I hate to say this, it's really easy to use. You know, you, you don't get the pushback because it's just a character or a performer acting like they can't hear. And most of the time they make them mute so they don't have to worry about an affected speech. I think it's the assumption that like everybody's Marley Matlin or not. Um, so it's one of the more well, well used disabilities in, in cinema and it can open the door to a lot of interesting avenues. Um, I think of something like the quiet, which if anybody's uh, seen that with the uh, Camilla Bell and Alicia Cuthbert, it's not the best movie, but it does um, have a, a really intriguing premise about how people who can hear use the deaf as a as a means of catharsis. And this, I, I wanted a bit more agency from the deaf characters, mostly because they're they're the subjects of this short, but they just kind of stop. You know, it, it's I wanted some type of period at the end of the sentence. I think I wanted some agency, or I wanted some more agency from the deaf characters. That is like bullseye. Sam's aspect didn't bother me too much because they're, I mean, we're seeing it literally everywhere now. I mean, it's good that we're having this kind of like public vomiting of abuse and that no one is seems to be able to hide this anymore or any longer. And I'm sure it's going to be going on for a very long time. So that aspect, like with Sam, didn't bother me and particularly in the way that her father manipulates and abuses her sense of touch in a way that being deaf and listening to music that way is a total violation of what she uses to get some pleasure out of life and then of course you know the 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 image in a nat plot line that one was I have no issues with that. It was perfect. So I think what you said there about just wanting a little more agency from the characters. I think in the case of Sam, there are some extenuating circumstances, but I could definitely see that there. And that it's definitely the case with Kevin, who is unfortunately there's just this poor guy who ends up getting mauled. And I guess just for my own clarification purposes, I really dug this. And it's because that title came just when Kevin was getting ripped apart that I was like, oh, that's all we get? I, I want more. I do want more. These things that we're talking about now, you know, maybe if this does get fleshed out a little more, 
adding a little more more agency, maybe a bit more context, or maybe some things we could look forward to. Who knows? Yeah, I'd definitely love to see this as a as a feature because, as I said, that first half is I thought was just worked wonderfully um, in terms of just building the uncomfortableness. Uh, but yeah, it, because it's the abrupt ending, I think it will rub people the wrong way at points. But I could definitely see this being fleshed out into a, a really engaging thriller. Agreed. Sec- uh, second or third aid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, since we're on the theme of uncomfortableness, especially in talking about Sam, let's get to your short, Andrew, because that short had me just, uh, I was, yeah, let's just talk about your few short. few bugs on the skin. few bugs crawling. Like I, I, I felt somewhat dirty watching, you know, the encounter with Sam and her father and that whole manipulation, yeah. but, you know, at least that way, like, you can kind of see it building, but when we get to the individual in your short, and especially how it's thing i i really felt like i needed to shower after watching it well my short that i picked is called lapse that is a title that gets horrifying with its implications by the very end Uh, it's written directed by charlotte wells and stars thea brooks just as herself and it wouldn't surprise me because this is the case unfortunately with a lot of women if this is just what happened but a, a recurring motif and what we're going to be discussing later, Mike Flanagan's Hush and, and uh, Sam's plotline in Dawn of the Deaf is when directors are using deaf characters or using deaf spaces, there is an extreme focus on sounds that carry weight to them that are a bit more, I know all sounds are sound waves, but more vibrational, like you can feel them. And while this does not feature a deaf character, it is essentially a woman rendered deaf by her circumstances. The The woman that Thea Brooks plays, it goes for a morning swim, gets on a train, and then on the train, she is sexually assaulted. One of the things that I appreciate that Lapse does is that it shows how casual and easy it is to sexually assault someone in the simplest way it's very uncomfortable because it uses that violation of skin again kind of going back to what we were talking about with sam and dawn of the death and the proximity of a train to have this man slowly force his way onto this woman and we don't see anything what we would commonly associate as explicit assault but when you've got those close-ups of his hand edging closer around her and then the sounds of the breath on the soundtrack by the time we get to the jeans and there is a bit of rustling we don't really need our imaginations to picture what's happening but they do nonetheless and it is bothersome so this is more kind of stylistically in the vein but also how men use their weight to impose their will just even on basic spaces and sounds and areas and it was it 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 was really effective for me in that regard this one i had to actually watch twice because i didn't immediately the first time through because there's so much quick cutting. I wasn't completely sure that I was seeing what I was seeing. 
Um, and then I watched it again. And I was like, oh, this is a horrible little film about how easy it is to rape somebody in broad daylight in public. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of the intent, how casual the whole thing feels. And really, for me, it was, you know, just the, the, this anxiety level. I mean, if you aren't really paying attention and you aren't noticing that it's about a, a rape, which is very easy to do, it took me twice. Having been on like a New York subway once in my life, you know, you feel that anxiety of people crushing around you. You aren't able to move, especially if you're short and you're small like I am, like people just don't see you. And and it's completely easy to understand how someone can get taken advantage of in that situation. But then the camera will cut to somebody who's in very close proximity who could probably be of some help, but they just either choose to ignore it or like the audience are really sure what's going on and don't want to interfere. I, I mean, it looks at the machine of, of assault. It's not just necessarily a person assaulting other person. It's the entire creation of people that can take part in an event without knowing that they are. Yeah. And that's one of the things that really freaked me out about this film, because you do get those shots of the, I guess, fellow passengers, onlookers, and you could tell in some of their faces, they clearly, some of them clearly know what's going on. And then there's others who just by their facial expression, you're not quite sure. And, the way how this film is edited with that once she gets on the train and that first contact happens, the, you know, the simple arm touching her arm, which happens all the time when you're in a cramped train and you're, um, you know, you're both reaching for a bar. You don't think much of it, but then you rarely see her in her entirety. You see, you know, parts of her cheek. You see different parts like the, she, she no longer becomes a person she for that traumatic ride she is literally just body parts you you don't even see the assailant because the assailant could be anyone and it's just how easily and how common it is and you know i, I was thinking especially with everything that's gone on especially with hollywood with all these affluent men getting taken down for all the horrible things that they've been doing and then the debates about the whole me too campaign and i've read articles and listened to interviews where some people will argue that you know have being like groped or patted on the butt or touched when you're in public isn't the same as you know being raped and how we shouldn't compare the two and it's like uh, assault assault uh, you, you, <laughs> you saw know. that conversation too yeah. <laughs> oh we've had it here in toronto and like you know our our pretty prominent newspapers we've had people debating for and con in terms of like what deems as assault and what should be. i love when people get really excited about definitions when it comes to like trying to defend someone that they like i i was having a very similar conversation uh uh, apparently people are really knowledgeable what about what age constitutes pedophilia versus statutory rape because they like Kevin Spacey. Um, that's a whole totally different article, but yeah, yeah, I have to throw that in semantics and definitions really become a big deal uh, when you're trying to defend somebody you like in film. Yeah. And it's true. And, and, and in this case, you know, people will, will argue about, Oh, which hunt, which hunt, what have you. But here we're seeing the violation. Like I, I, I wish some of those people who would argue that certain types of touching aren't as bad or aren't harassment. If it's unwarranted, then it's harassment. I wish that they would sit down and watch this film. Like just 
sit this film and see it if for five minutes if they are not uncomfortable and are not squeamish, you know, and then can still turn around and argue, well, you know, that's not really that bad of an assault. Like, it's, I don't know, I think this film is so effective and I kind of wish more people were aware of it. Yeah, a lot of what you said there has me nodding and, like, painfully nodding, especially with what you were saying about how Thea is reduced to this object. It's like a perversion of the style that Darren Aronofsky used in Requiem for a Dream, showing what people were passionate about, and specifically the moment that uh, Jennifer Connelly and Jared Leto's characters are alone together, like how he shows intimacy about the parts of the body that they're brushing at that moment, um, disconnected from the, the dialogue and the experience themselves. They're just experiencing each other. They're exploring each other. It's, you know, it's a, it's a oasis of healthy connection in this otherwise miserable movie. And I say that, I guess, with as much love as I can. But Laps, like, both the beginning and the end take on a really scary resonance when you see how easily these women and, and people in general in those enclosed spaces, but specifically women, get debased and broken down through their most basic parts because that first scene where she's doing laps she has to explain herself to a guy who feels entitled to her pool space that sets up the mentality that we see on the train and the people who kind of get what's going on but kind of don't want to get involved and i think that's where Kristen's comments on we're seeing the whole machine in action become very potent because one of the things that bothers me about me too is that everyone is going to have their own individual way of dealing with these experiences it's really hard to tell anyone what to or what not to do but in that moment if you're seeing something like that happen you gotta step up and it's those looks of recognition, again, cut off from bits of her that just chill me. And then it ends and she's got to get on another train. And that's where the lapse aspect becomes terrifying. Because this happened on this train. It's a city. She's getting on another train. And the next morning, she's probably going to have to defend herself to yet another guy who feels entitled to her space. She's probably going to have to do it on the next train as well. And it's when you get into that mental space of her being reduced to these parts and that being repeated daily. It Obviously, you can I don't know if y'all can hear. I'm getting a little worked up. But it goes back into what I've been talking about with my podcast that I do, Citizen Dave, and we've become so demoralized talking about, you know, the fallout from Harvey Weinstein and, and all the trash men that have come out the last couple of weeks. You hear these arguments about, oh, well, why would a woman go to a hotel room with somebody that they don't know? Um, you know, why would a woman do this? You men don't under and a lot of men don't understand i'm not gonna say all men um but a lot of of men don't realize how women have to adapt to any given situation because the threat of assault is always present so i was saying you know i don't get invited up to hotel rooms but i take uber you know when i'm in in the city because i don't drive I, i don't rent cars when i travel so i use uber and lyft and when you're using car services like that you know you could just as easily say, well, why would you get into a car with some strange guy that you don't know? Well, the intent is that, you know, I get into that car and I'm very vigilant. And, you know, I, I mean, I've, 
I've texted people the entire time I've been in an Uber being like, if anything goes wrong, you should know where I'm at. And that's the, the world that women have to to be in. When you get on the train, you're always taught, you know, look for your exits, keep your back to the wall, things like that. We have to be taught how to survive the world like urban gorillas because that's the way, you know, it's, it's easier to teach us how to avoid those situations than to teach society not to undo how to undo, you know, decades of of inherent male patriarchy. I mean, that's that's what I mean when I say the machine, you know, it's it's just easier to teach women. Oh, well, pack your pepper spray and put your keys between your fingers when you go out than it is to, like, deal with the fact that there are there are people, you know, men out there that feel that they're entitled to that. It's just it's a very sad state of affairs. It's interesting even hearing you talk about the getting the train with in the back on to the wall because that was something I was like oh you know I didn't even even think of that like you know I know especially just talking to the women in my life and stuff and hearing their stories you always hear about how you know being basically trained from an extremely young age that you have to be prepared have to be prepared but I wouldn't even think about the the back to the wall aspect and again. Of course, I wouldn't think of that, right? Because that's something that wouldn't occur to happen to me. But within the context of this film and, and we're talking about experiences and, and that sense of knowing that you have to be vigilant all the time, it, it still strikes me as, as shocking and upsetting that with this whole controversy that's erupting, you know, the, the amount of, of women who are, are coming out not to just defend the men, but to kind of say, well, there's layers to this type of harassment, you know, and the ones that come out and say, well, you shouldn't be at a hotel at whatever hour, or you should be doing this, this or that. And then they'll turn around and say, yeah, I've been assaulted this time, this time, but that wasn't that bad. You know, it's nothing to, to kick up a fuss or go to the police. But I'm like, no, that's the wrong mentality. You're sending out the wrong message. Like the, the one scene in this film that still is like seared in my brain is, is actually when the assault is over and she's on the train platform, I guess, waiting for the next train, not knowing what to do. And she's trying, she's in that stage of like trying to break down, but also trying to be strong. And she's got her arms up and you can see that the, her, her shirt is slightly ripped under the armpit. It's a quiet moment as people are walking by. No one's aware of what's going on, but I thought that that symbolism was just so powerful, you know? And as you said, Andrew, the fact that she had to go on the train and we see when she's on the train, Someone walks by her and you're thinking, is that the same guy? Is this going to happen again? It, it, it puts you in that frame of thought of next time I go on the train, I'm going to be observing everyone, you know, and I'm going to be a little more vigilant. Just something I would have never thought of before. And this images like this help to just reinforce the stuff that you hear over and over. And I I'm just shocked when I when I hear people say that, well, something like this isn't as bad as as others. I, I think it's just sending the wrong message. No, I mean, it is exactly. as bad. I don't think you're going to get an argument from either of us. It's 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 when we start talking about degrees of trauma and what point we should say, okay, well, this is worse than that or that's worse than this. It's all bad. It's all traumatic and it all needs to be confronted. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think you guys have touched on everything that I would have brought up. All right. Well, now that we're in a nice light mood... I think it's time to set some candles, pour some wine, and try to survive the rest of the night because we've got Mike Flanagan's Hush coming up after we change some reels.
Welcome back, everyone, and we're going to start talking about our feature film of the day with our special guest, Kristen Lopez. Mike Flanagan's Hush premiered in 2016. Uh, it's about Madison, a.k.a. Maddie Young, played by Kate Siegel, who is a mute author. And when she is at her home working on her latest book, best friend stops by. We think it's going to be a nice light evening. Until eventually her friend comes screaming back later. Maddie is unaware as she is deaf and mute. And a serial killer begins stalking Maddie through her home, only to find out that Maddie isn't so helpless. So Hush is the story of their give and take as they struggle in and around the home. Now, Courtney, before we discuss the finer points of Chekhov's corkscrew, why'd you pick this? This one is actually, I have to tip a hat to our guests for um, the reason I selected this. I was originally thinking of doing Cult of Chucky, which we had discussed earlier, because I had watched that recently at a local film festival. But then I wanted a film that tackled disability in in a different way. And when I was scanning the internet for ideas, I came across an article that Kristen had uh, written, and I saw in one of the paragraphs she had made reference to Hush and saying about how it's a good representation of disability. So in this show, we always tend to go for the stuff that may not have been on our radar before. So I decided to take a dive in for the first time, and that was really why I chose it. Overall, I will say... I was kind of mixed on this film. There's a lot to it that I liked, and especially in regards to the representation of disability and how I love the the premise of it and how it how it built. I had some issues with the villain, the unnamed man by John Gallagher, and that kind of led to some issues that I had with the later act, and, and especially how I felt like this cat and mouse game was prolonged in ways that didn't quite feel natural to me but i mean i know it's horror and you got to suspend your disbelief and it did bring up a certain question of privilege that i will dive into a bit later but um that was my initial thoughts on the film hush is one that i discovered through other critics who had talked about it when it came out and i it was one of actually one of the first articles that i ever uh freelanced uh and wrote for uh, a site outside of the ones that i had been working with so i got to talk about it which was really really cool. I mean, the movie is is far from perfect. It's somewhat similar to 1967's Wait Until Dark, which is a movie where Audrey Hepburn plays a blind woman and is terrorized by Alan Arkin for, for uh, an hour and a half. And it's very similar. Both of those movies are very, very similar in tone. So like, you know, Kate Siegel is not a deaf actor. And I know that there were a lot of criticisms against uh, against that from the deaf community, as rightfully there should be. She's also, um, you know, disabled late in life. They mentioned that she lost her hearing at a certain point due to um, meningitis, which if you've heard any of my arguments, I always say that that's an attempt to make the audience, the able-bodied audience relate to the disabled person. But at the same time, what I really like is how it creates this world that we want to show. And, and this is what I think horror has been doing so well lately, showing the a, a world that this person lives in. So, like, she can't cook. Um, she, But she has a, a great support. She has a great support system. She's had romantic relationships. 
some that are a little messy, you know, so obviously she's a sexual figure in some in some sense. There's not really this woe is me attitude. We get to see how she's adapted. So, you know, the fact that she has this fire alarm that that has to be, even though it's kind of like a, a duus machina device in the film, it's something that, you know, you do have to bring up. How does a person who can't hear deal with things in life that do require hearing. So I like that it brings up those little things. She's not really bemoaning the fact that her life sucks. You know, she still has this really great cabin in the woods and she's got like the most good looking neighbors possible. Um, she's also really hot. So I'm sure all of that helps. <laughs> um, but then when it, when it turns into the fact that she's being stalked and Having seen John Gallagher on Broadway in Spring Awakening, I'm never not going to believe that he's just not like a super nice guy. Um, he's never really going to be threatening. He was Emmett or in, uh, in, uh, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Like he was like the, the nice guy in that movie. That's to say, I don't find him intimidating, but it's the fact that he thinks she's an easy mark. You know, it's that, that able-bodied perception of she's a victim and this is going to be like really, it's going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. And she makes him work for all of this. Like, I like that element that she's not waiting around. And, and you see this again with the, the Chucky films as well. She's not waiting for somebody to kill her. You know, she's like, I'm going to go down swinging. And we'll, we'll, we can talk about the ending because there's a moment in the film that is just so heart wrenching because it would require her to give up in some sense. And I, I like the fact that she's a fighter. Um, I do wish that we, we didn't have to rely on actual dialogue at a certain point. Again, there's a lot of narrative convenience moments in the third act, but overall, I really enjoy this movie a lot. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, Kristen, but I can also see where you're coming from, Courtney. So I will be the, uh, the mediator, maybe. I don't know. But I can already tell I'm going to have a love-hate relationship with Mike Flanagan because I dug the heck out of this. But there is one scene, and I think this may be what you were talking about, Kristen, towards the end, where Maddie is, like, talking to herself, and then there's this yeah. reflection, and her reflection is able to speak to her. I hated that scene. I hated it. Um, and bringing back to my love-hate relationship, this is the second Mike Flanagan film I've seen, and this comes after Gerald's Game. Gerald's Game is one of my least favorite movies this year. I almost loathed it. It had such a fundamental misunderstanding of both trauma, staging, and the source material that I was just angry when it was over. But that's the only scene in Hush that carried that kind of stigma, where it has to break its own world in order to show us something. And that may be because... Flanagan's still relatively early, like in terms of being in the public eye with his career. Or maybe this will end up being something like Adam Wingard, where he's got a couple of fun flicks in him and then he'll troll people on the internet or something. I don't know. But this is a lot of fun. And other than that one moment, I think that everything in this builds very nicely. There's a it really gives you a feel for the world early on. And this goes to kind of the recurring thing I've been talking about, about the sound design in our shorts and then now in Hush. It's a lot of sounds that you can feel. It's the sizzle of the stove. 
Um, you could almost taste the sauce, and I think that Kate Siegel's acting when she is trying her own wares is wonderful. So you're kind of feeling it in your speakers as you're watching it. I love the bits of misdirection here, too, as the masked man, uh, and that's all he is really, is the masked man, is testing his presence around her. It's like he's found this spider that he can slowly peel the legs off of. Like, he's never had a meal that's waiting this much for him. But I also use Spider there intentionally because spiders are good at weaving traps. And Maddie does an excellent job at weaving a trap for him. But in addition to, you know, the sound design aspect, it's all about just, like, the way the weight and the light and the atmosphere shift as this man that feels entitled to having his presence in her home, in her body, and... Going back to laps there, it just comes off really unnerving. It wasn't scary exactly, but I was thrilled. Like, I was really into this, save the one moment that we just talked about. Yeah, and see, the buildup and the eeriness is what I, I liked. Like, when he initially shows up and realizes that she can't hear and then starts to play and, like, you know, sends her photos of herself with the phone and lets her know all that stuff. I was into and even the way how he used her deceased friend to terrorize her out of the room that she had barricaders like it, it was it for at least the first half of the film it had me thinking what would i do in that situation you know i was really it really does kind of put you in her shoes and if you couldn't hear and how vulnerable you would be and how vulnerable she is and i thought that stuff was fantastic the psyching herself up scene talking about the options i'm, I'm a little torn on because i didn't necessarily like the image of her talking to herself i thought there would have been other ways to do it but i wasn't too upset with her visualizing the various options i was okay with that aspect one of the things that did bother me though and i know it's a horror uh, thriller you got to go with the conventions is some of the ways that she tried to escape like the, the scene where she's on the roof and she gets the idea to use the flashlight as a distraction and then literally has to kind of like tiptoe tight walk over this part of the roof, which would slow the whole process down. And I kept thinking, well, he's obviously going to he's going to see you there. There's no way that you can hide when you're moving that slowly. Conventions like that bothered me. And then, of course, you know, there's a scramble. There's a lot of times where she'll do something. Oh, it doesn't work. And it has to kind of scramble back in the house. And there's certain moments where it works. And then there's other times where it it did irk me a little but. The one thing that I found fascinating, and it's probably unintentional, but it's how easily, especially in horror films, being a white male allows people to just divulge information to you, no matter, no matter what the, uh, the subject matter is. And I, and I found when the neighbor shows up looking for his girlfriend and he thinks that the man is a police officer without flashing a badge, you know, you even look at the way how he's dressed and there's nothing that would indicate that this individual is a, a cop. But because he has a flashlight, the neighbor's boyfriend is just willing to divulge all this information before he wises up, hey, maybe this guy isn't as cool as he thinks he is. And, you know, that that aspect of privilege I thought was actually quite fascinating. There's a lot that I find as good that can be undermined by the plot. Because, once again, as we mentioned in the last episode, you're limited by the experience of the screenwriter and the director, who are not disabled. So, you know, you have things like, the fact that Maddie has to have 
dialogue at the end to sound out her options. And it makes you think, because one of the friends asks her, how, how does she interpret her voice? Because she lost her ability to speak so young, you know? So does she, does she think in the voice of, of her 13 year old self or whenever she lost her, her hearing? And she says that she thinks like, you know, her voice is like her mother. And so when she does have this moment where she's talking, it kind of surprises you because you, there's really no, you know, like, holy shit. She's, you know, disgu- it's just kind of happens, which makes me feel like it's them backing themselves into a narrative corner and they had to find some way to do that. Um, but, but I love the little things that, yeah, bring up that privilege. So like when, when the husband shows up and he totally starts talking to this guy because, you know, he's a white guy like him. He might be a cop. Um, the fact that she has to write on the window that, you know, I didn't see your face. I'm not going to say anything. And my boyfriend's coming. Like we as women, we are told 101. If somebody's bothering you, tell them you have a boyfriend. You you bring you see that in Scream as well uh, to go back to the Drew Barrymore character. You know, that concept of there's definitely a guy coming and he's totally going to kick the shit out of you and and he plays on that i mean but at the same time it's it's often hard to not see some of the male privilege come through in the script so like stupid things like the fact that he can just walk into her house because the doors aren't always locked i was like you are a girl out in the woods you have your doors and windows locked tight girl you do not have stuff (laughs) unlocked You know, that's just not what you do. So stupid things like that that kind of turn the privilege of the the screenwriter makes it a little meta. Because I know many a woman who would watch this and say, that is not what women do. It's on par with, like, taking our clothes off in front of each other. You know, that doesn't happen. That's just what men think happen, male screenwriters. So so things like that. But at the same time, she is very resourceful. And I, I like that she's thinking in terms not because of her disability, but because just in general. So like when she has this moment to escape and she realizes that if she does, she won't make it and she, or she'll bleed out. So, you know, she's not thinking in terms of like, well, can I do it because I'm deaf? It's be- no, because the laws of just being human <laughs> mean that I'm not going to be able to do that. So I, I like that aspect. Yeah. And I don't want to keep harping on the talking to self scene, but something you said, Kristen, reminded me in the dialogue, and you basically quoted it verbatim, that she hears her mother. I'm sitting here as you're saying that, and I'm like, why wasn't the reflection her mother instead of her? That would make sense. I mean, and it goes back to what I'm saying, that there are just tiny things that kind of break you out of this world. Then there are the big-ass things that bring you back into it. Like, it's funny that you're talking about, like, not leaving the doors locked and such, because I lock shit up when I go to sleep. I'm actually fine leaving things unlocked if I'm not in the home. But if I'm in the home before I go to sleep, I make sure everything is locked up nice and tight. Here, I think it it really does show her level of comfort and confidence in herself more than anything else because of how little... She is overall intimidated by this guy. When we're talking also about kind of like this male privilege thing, basically the the horror or the villain in this is that this masked guy feels entitled to her life. But literally, he gets to take her life whenever he wants to. So when we're talking about like the privilege with the neighbor's boyfriend, husband, whatever, that was a hilarious scene to me because I wish dudes 
white dude specifically had that good of a bullshit detector. I loved in the terms of just general horror tropes how John is able to pick up that this isn't right and keeps trying to misdirect the man so that he can get a one up on him or he can get some distance so that he can figure out what this man is. It's interesting for me because because that's where my privilege alarm went off because white dudes generally are so freaking clueless as to danger or the threat that they place to someone else, whether they realize that they're doing it or if they're doing it intentionally. As much as I loved the scene, that was the one that kind of got my privilege detector going. It's interesting because the one aspect of that scene, and I think that's probably why I have a lot of issues with John Gallagher Jr.'s character, the the unnamed man, is because I felt in that moment we saw the most in terms of his personality, his resourcefulness in thinking, you know, in terms of like coming up with this whole cop persona and whatnot. And he even alludes a couple of times to the fact that this husband John is uh, is a big dude, and I, chances are, I, if it was a fair if it was a fair fight, I would not win. You know, and I was like, oh, I, I actually get a bit of, of personality, a bit of character, because yes, we know he's resourceful throughout most of it. But with certain horror films, I'm fine with not knowing anything about the killer if it's just a freak monster, what have you. In situations like this, I kind of want to know a little bit more about the person who's in, intruding. It's not for me. It wasn't just enough that he was just some dude and he's going around <laughs> killing him because he can. Even in if you think of like the Dark Knight, yes, the Joker wants to see the world burn, but he wanted to do it in interesting ways. There was interesting facets to, to his character, even though he's a madman. Whereas this one, it was just like, I killed your neighbor. Your house was here. To, to contradict my earlier statements about me not finding John Galvatating, <laughs> I think that what I like about his performance here is that, you know, you, you watch serial killer movies. Most of the time, serial killers, or at least murderers in movies who tend to be male, usually fall into, like, two camps. The overly good-looking guy, like, I think, like, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, or you get, like, the disgusting, like, horrible person that definitely looks like a murderer. And here, I think what makes John Gallagher Jr. so frightening is the fact that he looks like just an average Joe. The scumminess of the character comes through in his entitlement and his belief that she's weak. So like he does little things that just are meant to needle, like tapping on the glass, coming up behind her. You can just kind of feel the excitement off of him that this is an easy mark, um, that there's really no skill involved for him in this. It's just, you know, kind of like a really cool benefit of of killing the the friend. But what I, I appreciate is that to contradict that, most of the time when you look at movies with deaf or blind characters specifically, there's this weird like X-Men quality to them in a lot of movies where their <laughs> other sense become heightened. So I think of something like Rogue One, which really annoyed me. Um, you know, there's a, a blind character who is able to do all this really cool shit because the force is like compelling. I'm like, no, that don't make it sound like you were doing something s smart when you're just trying to get over the fact that you're appropriating disability and trying to make it like a spidey sense. So in, in this case, there's nothing really like superhuman about her. And I think that that puts them on a nice, like even playing field as much as, as I feel that the third act 
tends to be wonky. And I like the fact that the able-bodied people are, like, killed off really quickly in this movie. Which, you know, if you look at the history of horror and disability, oftentimes you think, I think of something like Texas Chainsaw, where, like, the disabled person is killed off really quick. Mind you, in Texas Chainsaw, the disabled person is also, like, the biggest asshole in the history of the universe, so you're really just waiting for him to die. Those are the little things that I like about this movie, even though... The third act, I think, is kind of, I don't want to say it's a mess, but the third act is um, sloppy, I think might be the word. I still can't figure out how he got into the bathroom. It's a window, but it makes no sense how that works. Well, because I thought the window was locked, though. Like, I, I the shot of her... He didn't her... Lock so honestly, it wouldn't surprise me, because they think that we just don't lock things. We just leave everything open. Yeah, but when she realizes that he's there, and all hell is breaking loose the, she goes through and, and and locks a lot of the the windows except for the ones that she has to go through and even when she comes back in she tries to to lock i, I like her as a character i think she was great and i even love the shot of where you see like the hair on the back of her neck stand on edge because he's he's there but i couldn't figure out how he he got in and to your point about her resourcefulness i think it's fantastic like i liked seeing her struggle with the crossbow so that when she actually does use it, you know, it it, it, it does feel gratifying. Because often in those these type of movies, the person just picks up the enemy's weapon and can magically use it. I like a lot of what she was doing throughout. And, you know, her situation and how she used the FaceTime and even towards the end how she used her computer to document the features of the man and also send a, a little note to, to her mom to let her know that, you know, she if she's going to go down, she's going to go down swinging. I thought all that was great. I just, I don't know, I guess... I just wish there was more to the man opposed to, I can do this, I can get into your house magically. I do think that he does tend to fall for the, towards the end, that little superhuman trope that a lot of horror villains fall where he's just an average Joe. He can get shot with an arrow, fight a guy, and then he can still do miraculous things like, you know, yeah, tropes I'm not... I don't want to get too bogged up in this stuff because what you just said about his in injuries also applies to her. Because she gets yeah. banged up pretty badly early on, and she should be bleeding out or passed out much sooner than she actually is. So I don't... Like, I, I get where you're coming from, but I don't know if it's helpful overall, because I think we can at least say, like, there are two rules in this. One everything is unlocked unless we specifically see a shot with Mike Flanagan. He follows her as she locks it. Otherwise, it's unlocked. We have to assume that it's unlocked. And two, that this dude is insanely insecure. With what you, we were talking about with Laps, like, and I mean this with all seriousness, this is what the man in Laps does when he gets off his shift. He uses his body and his presence and his space to torment people that he otherwise couldn't in any other circumstance, which is why his confrontation with John is so interesting because he knows, and that's his arrogance showing in terms of how he feels like he can lord over Maddie. When John shows up, he knows he can't lord over this guy, like he's out alpha or whatever. That's what makes the third act for me so badass. She writes coward in her own blood on the glass. Uh, yeah, I did enjoy that, that moment. That was so badass. And her taking the time afterwards to write out the features and say, 
uh, oh man, hold on. I need to, uh, need to look up a bit more. I have a lot of all caps notes writing at this part because, <laughs> because it, it was just so good. Like taunting him with her own blood. Like he is this vampiric presence, but he doesn't have the handsomeness to carry it off or the sparkles to give him superpowers. And just that she wrote down, died fighting. She is going into this with no reservations. And then she slices him and she blinds him and deafens him. It's so awesome. And damn it, now I just remembered something else that I didn't like. Because it was something else that happened in Gerald's game where we have to have this thing where her whole life is flashing before her eyes when she's getting choked out. It's it's another moment where, like, the immersion is broken ever so slightly, but it doesn't have that huge cathartic weight that the similar kind of historical flashback moment in something like Creed does, where there's a lot of weight and resonance to it. In this case, it's just a lot of pictures of people that we already know Mike Flanagan isn't too interested in actually showing us. And I can't help but wonder how much more badass that moment would have been if we weren't seeing those flashbacks and just get the dying, dying, dying corkscrew attack death. There's so much in that third act that I do just love. Well, I, I like the fact that you brought up the letter that she writes, because, again, it's something that women are taught. You don't want to be presented as this victim. You know, it's I, I can almost feel like she's believing how this is going to be played out on the news. Like, poor deaf girl gets viciously, you know, slaughtered by this person. And, you know, she, everybody's going to judge her for being weak. And she wants to reiterate that she wasn't. But at the same time, she's describing what this person looks like. And I, I compared that to something like Taken, where Maggie Grace's character, before she is proverbially taken, um, starts screaming out the descriptor of the person that has abducted her. And I thought it was way more effective to see the words than it is to hear the description. Often when when utterances and, and dialogue are spoken, there's so much misinterpretation. It's why, you know, eyewitness testimony is often so suspect. But writing it out, I mean, you have to be getting a really good look at what you're looking at. So I, I thought little things like that were intriguing. And the third act, when she deafens him, that's the part that makes it feel like it's Wait Until Dark. Because the ending of Wait Until Dark is very similar to this in that it's Audrey Hepburn knocking out all the lights in the apartment so that... Um, Alan Arkin's character can't see. I always feel a little weird about, you know, trying, because this is why I think blind and deaf are the disabilities often utilized so much for cinema, because it's easy to put the assailant on that level. Just remove a sense. It's not as easy as like, okay, cut his legs off and then he can be, you know, in the same, same atmosphere as somebody in a wheelchair. Um, so I, I, it's a trope I have very mixed emotions about. Because it only is utilized on those two disabilities. And it's I think a lot of screenwriters see it as progressive. And it just isn't. But at the same time, like, I'm happy that her and the cat are, like, really cool. Like, happy at the end. <laughs> and, and real quick, I completely feel you on the overall way 
that screenwriters end up trying to level the playing field with able-bodied people. Here, I think it worked for me because they had already set up earlier how overwhelming the sound is. So when you've got that mixed in with the spray that she sprays on his eyes and then the brightness on top of the toxic spray on top of the noise, I thought it built really nicely. But even that said, it does play into that trope. I mean, I can see if more people would complain about it, but as as I told John Mancini, I you know, the horror genre is doing a lot of good in terms of giving me original stories with disabled women. You know, mainstream Hollywood does not do that. When when disability happens, it is based on a true story, white male. I would love a woman. I would love a person of color. You know, I mean, I would love an original movie based on somebody's idea about disability, not somebody's based on a true story. And and I talked to Don Mancini about why do you think mainstream Hollywood is so content to do based on true stories? You know, why do you think that they're so resistant to presenting disability in an original story like Hush or, or the Chucky films? And and we kind of danced around it, but we both chalked up to laziness. <laughs> that it's just easier for a screenwriter to take a story that's already made about a disabled person and sell it as inspiration porn, as we brought up, as opposed to telling an original story, doing the research to present that disability accurately. It's showing the limits of their experience, but most screenwriters, I don't think, want to go beyond their experience. That's very upsetting because, you know, Hush isn't a perfect film, but in a landscape where I can say that the horror genre has more disabled women who have agency than, you know, mainstream Hollywood, you know, that's very rare in a in a genre that went through the entire 1980s demonizing women for having sex, you know, like who would have thunk? That is very true, and I, and I think... Also, outside of the, the laziness, one of the reasons why we keep getting the inspirational male story for a lot of mainstream films that deal with disabilities is also because they've essentially created an award system that rewards all that, you know? So it's easier for a studio to make those films because they know chances are they're going to get award notice and then they'll get, you know, predominantly, you know, I'm, actually, no, I won't say that was because I won't be judgmental about the, the type of age of the individuals that like those type of stories. But <laughs> they know they know that they're going to get a, a, a certain clientele that will go to see those films based off, off of the award nominations or award recognition. So it's a, they've created a cycle that basically feeds itself and churns out the exact same type of stuff over and over. I'm just going to say the words Eddie Redmayne and leave it there. Oh, God. <laughs> There's so much that I hate that involves Eddie Redmayne um, or me before you. I could I could go on and on. I am so happy. You guys have no idea that I'm not going to be here to go to my press screening of Wonder. <laughs> because I won't have to be angry. I won't have to be mad. Uh, I, I'm very happy about that. I am so sick of writing about disabled movies that just make me hate myself. <laughs> well, I hope this one at least uh, gave you some feeling of badassness, uh, even if. It's... Oh yeah, this the, I've been a champion of this movie. This I think was in my top twenty uh, last year. It might have been. I don't quote me on that, but it was definitely high. I still love it. I wish it had gotten more attention than it did because, again, it's rare to get a disabled heroine 
who is is badass and kudos to Mike Flanagan for starting the trend and you know him and him and Don Mancini are doing something new something truly new for disabled representation I hope it slowly starts to trickle out to other genres because we need it and at least in Mike Flanagan's case I can recommend this and then politely try and steer the conversation away from Gerald's game I can just be like Hush is badass oh there's a shiny thing I haven't seen this movie yet, and yeah, I've heard a lot either. of positive things, and yet I'm I'm hearing negativity. I don't know how I feel. <laughs> well, I'm the dude who is, like, hardcore into DC movies because he loves Zack Snyder. I, uh, I, I forgive think- you. <laughs> but I think that, uh, I don't know, Gerald's Game, I, I do feel like I'm in the minority there. This has at least made it so that I will come back to Mike Flanagan's career, and maybe I'll give the Oculus movies a shot too. Oculus is not terrible. I, you know, the, the first <laughs> Oculus, I saw the first Oculus when it came out. I didn't hate it. Um, Such a rousing review. Yeah, there, yeah, there was, there was that. Um, I thought that movie was good. Zack Snyder still owes me thirteen fifty. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was originally twenty five, and I've knocked it down over the years. So thirteen fifty, I'm willing to accept that, and we'll call it square. Uh, Courtney, before we get ourselves way too more derailed, um, <laughs> this being your film, any final thoughts? No, I mean I'm I'm glad I saw it, and uh, as I said, I think the representation of a woman who happens to be deaf. I- I thought was really well done. And I know I, out of all of us, I've probably come down the harshest on this film, but I didn't hate it. Like, you know, I did enjoy it for the most part. I just, there was just aspects to it that kind of irked me the wrong way. And I just, I guess I just wish that the villain, the predator was a little more compelling than he was. And I think that's a fair point to leave us off on. Kristen, I think this will maybe be the last time we ask you to do this for a while, but uh, any closing plugs you want to leave us on? So, uh, for for me, you can find me on uh, Twitter at journeys underscore film. If you want to hear me opine more about this topic um, or get my 1350 back from Zack Snyder, <laughs> you can do that on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you can also check out my classic film podcast, Ticklish Business. That's at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com or Citizen Dame, where me and a round table of women discuss um, Hollywood. Right now, we've been mired in how horrible the men of Hollywood are. So if you'd like to hear us get continually more dismayed about humanity, um, you can check that out at Citizen Dame dot podbean dot com and courtney how about yourself uh they can reach me at our twitter account um at changing reels ac or they can reach me directly at small mind on twitter and you can reach me on twitter at can't stop drew i also monitor our gmail account which is changing dot reels dot ac at gmail dot com and on top of the stretch goals i've already got for the can't stop the movies patreon just for kristen i'm going to put this in there I'm really close. If you happen to be the lucky person that puts my Patreon over $100, I will send Kristen the 1350 Zack Snyder owes her. In- <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to be that person, please help me out. And it's not only helping me out, it's helping Kristen with that long-standing debt of 1350 <laughs> In any event... Uh, it's a long-standing debt, Zach. You might <laughs> want to get to pay up, okay? And I, I will be happy to clear that marker. <laughs> stop the movies, Patreon. Thank you for listening, folks. This one's been an absolute blast. Our uh, artist friend, Seth, who does the lovely artwork for our episodes, will actually be joining us on the next one. So, until then, remember, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. Mm-hmm.
been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. I'm dead serious about that, Kristen. I will send you 1350 <laughs> when I get over 100. <laughs>